Tommaso. So we come to the end of the line, the last in our series of 20 meditations over 10 days. And you'll, of course, remember that this is the one where we kind of do the warm-up exercise, the almost like contemplative stretching. I want to emphasize it really is a preliminary practice. You don't simply keep on doing that month after month after month. It's more, as I mentioned before, like stretching before running a marathon. And I think it's right there. Here's my intuition or my inter- interpretation. This directing awareness upwards into the sky, to the right, the left, downwards, always coming back to the center, then to the heart, and then just out into space. I think this is designed to overcome some kind of implicit assumptions, tendencies, frames of mind that when we are resting in awareness, we're resting in a small space. The space of the mind is small. Or it's a point. You know, it's like a really small space. Or it's relatively large. Or it's really big. It's none of the above, right? Awareness is non-local. And so with this expansion, at least we have a sense of being open-ended. Of course, there's no border. We're not looking this far and then having a sense just that far. But just open in all directions with no center, no periphery. So once we've done that, kind of broken down barriers. You remember breaking down barriers in the four measurables, remember? Breaking down barriers to people we don't care for that much or what have you. Breaking down barriers. So it's just it's all open, free flow of the spirit of caring, loving kindness, compassion. In a, simil- in a similar way, complementary way, this practice now is designed to break down barriers of any preconceptions of the mind being this large, this shape, this location, and so forth, just open. And then, having done that, just letting the awareness rest in its own place, with no sense of out or in or in front of you or behind your eyeballs, just leave it, because those are all appearances, and you're not placing your awareness inside appearances, you're releasing all appearances, and letting your awareness just rest where it is. Yeah? So, Let's place this in a little bit of context again, because I think there really is such a, a marvelous and very profound and subtle flow from the mindfulness of breathing on through to the awareness of awareness. And each of these addressing different lines at the gate, to use a, a nice metaphor. And that is when we're practicing mind, mindfulness of breathing, now knowing where we're going, as we did yesterday, looking into who is the observer, who's in here, Is there some localized presence, some localized awareness that is the subject? In contrast to all those objects out there, right? And prior to that, looking into agency, is there someone in here who's doing this, the inversion and so forth? Well, knowing that's kind of how the, how the story turns out. You know, we've read the whole book up to Shamata. Now after that, ah, there's a sequel. Uh, but knowing the whole book of Shamatha, at least having some flavor of it, some conceptual understanding, know it, knowing how it ends, you know, how the plot turns out, then we go back to the opening chapters and we see in the practice of mindfulness of breathing, we are relinqu- relinquishing control, the sense of I am the agent, I'm in charge here. We're put, making that go dormant, releasing that sense of control over the body. Right? There it is, just goes to total meltdown. Just relax, releasing. And this is why I keep on coming back to the supine position, the corpse position. Because there, really, you just, you totally release it. If you're sitting upright, clearly there has to be some 
how do you say, contraction of muscles, otherwise you fall over. But as much as you can, you try to just let that go on autopilot, right? So Anizambala has a belt she showed in an earlier retreat or sometime in the past, uh, where the belt will hold you in that, you know, a meditation belt, a Milarepa style meditation belt. So even if your, your awareness completely disengages from your body, you don't just kind of slump or fall over, because the belt holds you in place. Oh, well, very useful. But there it is. With respect to the body, we're releasing the sense of agency, I am in control. And then within the body, and this is where it gets subtle, and it is so important, releasing that which we can so easily control, and that is the breathing. Right? It's a bodily function, which as we all know, can go on involuntarily. It does every time we fall asleep. We can totally, we can hold our breath, we can hold it out, we can breathe left-right nostrils, we can do all kinds of things with it. But, while attending to it, releasing control. So there it is, bodily functions, the posture, the breathing, releasing control. Now when it comes to the mind, we are controlling, right? There's a lot of control there. We are directing attention for one thing, but also as the thoughts, desires, emotions come up and so forth, then we are controlling. It's a controlling of releasing, and very specifically, think of the the, the outermost lions at the gate, acting out of craving and hostility. Well, there's the outermost gate. If you're still stuck there, well, then you're not practicing Dharma. It's kind of simple. Then you're not practicing Dharma at all. You're just pursuing hedonic pleasure. That's nice. Have a nice day. Take out a long-term lease in samsara. You'll be there for, you know, indefinite future. But if we're still acting out without without restraint, without metacognition, without wisdom, just acting out every impulse, that's fine, but then there's no dharma. You may as well be an animal. That's what they do, right? And so in mindfulness of breathing, we're not acting out anything. We're sitting still. So at least we're not hurting anybody. We're not acting on craving and hostility, right? But likewise, when thoughts, impulses of craving and hostility arise in the mind, We banish them. We exert control. So there's agency there. Now we're saying, okay, I've released control over the body. I've released control over the breathing. But when it comes to the mind, I'm in charge here. And if craving or hostility comes up, I'm sorry, no place for you. I'm, fo- I'm focusing on something here that really doesn't arouse or accommodate either craving or aversion. The breathing. It's just not one of those objects of craving or aversion. So, we've knocked out two lions. We've knocked out one lion of acting out of craving and hostility. And then number two, when craving and hostility arise in the mind, we release them, we banish them, knock them out, make them go dormant. Say, not here. We subdue, we silence, we anesthetize the conceptual mind while sharpening up and clarifying the non-conceptual awareness as we engage with the sensations of the breath. So that's what those are clearly a couple of big steps in the right direction. But the sense of agency is there, even though we've subdued the enactments of craving and hostility, and we've subdued the activities of craving and hostility in the mind, the sense of agency, that I am the agent here, I am meditating, I'm doing something here, that's still there. Okay? But, as the Buddha said, doing this, you can experience an ambrosial state, a sublime state, in which unwholesome states of mind vanish instantly. So there's mindfulness of breathing in a nutshell, as a shamatha practice. As we move on to settling the mind in its natural state, 
Well, of course, we still relinquished control over the body. Of course, we, so it, it's Russian dolls again. Those relinquishments of mindfulness of breathing still still relinquishments. Release control over the body. Release control, the agency over the breathing. But now, when it comes to the mind, well, there is some, certainly some control over the direction of attention. That's for sure. But in terms of the activities of the mind, once again, so easy, if not to control, at least influence. You want to think about oranges and tangerines? You can. For a while, you can. You know, if you don't want to think about oranges, well, then think about ap apples and giraffes, you know. And so we can direct this and that. We can bring up images, think this and that and so forth. And now we see a much subtler level of relinquishment of the sense of being in control, the agent. Something so intimate, so close, our nearest neighbor, the activities of the mind. Right. And we, as in the earlier case, observing closely the breath, but not controlling, and now observing ever so closely the activities of the mind, but without control. So when I was reading Dujum Lingba's account of this, just, I think, yesterday, that was it. He just said, watch whatever comes up. Don't mess with it. Don't alter it. And do this continually. Just do it Just do it all the time. During sessions and between sessions. Be relentless. Just all the time. And that's how you settle your mind in its natural state. So, since that agency is gone, even now, not only with the body and the speech, or the respiration, but now even the mind, right? Then we go to awareness of awareness. Awareness of awareness. And having come to rest in the experience of being aware, then we start probing in, knocking on the door. Is there really an agent here at all? Probing that in, probing, definitely encroaching in the Vipassana territory. Encroaching, encroaching until you see, on the one hand, quite possibly, appearances, a sense, some presence of being someone who's in charge. But as you inspect that carefully, you'll see it's, it's, it's a mirage. It felt like there was somebody in there really doing something, but when you inspect it, it's like a mirage. It's a rainbow. It's, there's nothing to it. It's like mist. It's it's just an appearance. And it's totally empty. And so, in fact, that was a big lie. That was a delusion to think there's really somebody in here behind the curtain who's, you know, pulling the, the levers and the, the handles and so forth of the mind. And in, you know, like running a crane or driving a truck. There's no one driving. Empty. Empty of an autonomous agent. But there's still something left. And that is, of course, beyond agency, observancy. Simply the witness. The localized, individuated witness. And as we probe into that, again, knocking, almost like breaking down one door and going to another one and then seeing another door, and seeing once again something it really is designed to see something and not to see nothing, but to probe in until you do sense, ah, there is kind of the amorphous, not clearly defined, but nevertheless present sense of there 
me being something, someone, in here, in here, the subjective side, attending to that over there, the objective side, something localized, it's me, the observer, and inspecting that and once again seeing, oh, there are appearances. But then you observe what's observing those appearances, and once again, empty, open, empty, open, spacious, luminous. So you break through then your ordinary sense of being the agent and the observer in the domain of course mind, being man, woman, human being, personal history and that kind of business, until you just see it was just a hall of mirrors, just a whole sequence of appearances, appearances all the way through, right? So that way the mind settles in its natural state, substrate consciousness. And if one can continue to release, then of course. Or, I mean, then the classic sequence is to examine very carefully with some, in the Mahamudra Dzogchen approach, it's, it's very like a, it's like a stiletto, like a very sharp knife coming right in to the core and examining the manner in which a more primitive, a more primal sense of being the observer there, the substrate consciousness, my mind, my, my raw, naked, stripped-down, bare, essential mind, my mind, how it arises, how little bubbles of thoughts and images and so forth emerge from it. How does this occur? How does it arise? From where does it arise? How is it present? Where is it present? What are its characteristics being present? And from moment to moment, as awareness itself images thoughts, as they dissipate, how do they dissipate? Where do they go to? It's a deeper probe. It's a deeper probe. It's an ontological probe. A radically existential probe into the emptiness of inherent nature, of the substrate consciousness and everything that arises from it. So that's very deep. That's very deep. Kama Chakme, a great 17th century Gagyuba master, Mahamudra master, and Nyingma, Nyingma master, master of both Mahamudra and Dzogchen, wrote a classic, large text called The Union of Mahamudra and Dzogchen. And when he comes to the Vipassana section, after the Shamatha, right after the Shamatha, of course, and comes the Vipassana, then he just, it's all, like this, all the guns are pointed to the nature of the mind. He doesn't, I don't recall his doing any examination of atoms or other objective stuff. It just all hammering into is your own mind, your own mind, your own consciousness. Is it inherently existent by its own nature or not? Hammering into that. As I mentioned yesterday, if you realize that, then the emptiness of all the appearances to the mind, all the objects objects apprehended by the mind, the emptiness of all other phenomena, kind of like a domino effect, they're bound to all fall down. But you go to the core first, and he gives an analogy for this. He said there are multiple ways to realize emptiness. There's a way that, frankly, and I say this with total respect, the Galupas are just masters of, so are the Sakyapas, tremendous kind of artillery 
of using logic and the reasonings of Nagarjuna and Chandakirti and Shantideva and so forth, Buddha Palita and so forth, where they, in the Mulamajyamakakarika, the great presentation, the great treatise by Nagarjuna, his definitive treatise, really, on the nature of emptiness, he examines everything, space, time, matter, everything, and shows that whatever you inspect, it never stands up to. You never find anything there existing from its own side, by its own nature, independent of a conceptual designation. One by one, he just kind of like, this massive, like just bombarding, you know, like bringing out these big 18-inch guns and just blasting the hell out of everything. There's just nothing left that exists that stands, withstands that assault of Nagarjuna's major arsenal. Not space, not time, not matter, not the galaxy, not atoms, not mind, not you, not Buddha, not Sambhogakaya, Namanakaya, not, not Buddha nature. Nothing. He says, from elementary particles all the way up to the omniscient mind. There's a phrase from the Prajnaparamita Sutras. From elementary particles up to the omniscient mind, nothing exists by its own inherent nature. So there's one away. And Kama Chakme, so here's, and the Galupas are so good at this, and they're so articulate. And they drew heavily from the Sakya tradition, same, Sakya Pandita, Kunga Gyanzen, oh, just incredibly brilliant minds. But Kama Chakme, coming back to the Mahamudra Dzogchen tradition, he says there are multiple ways to give an analogy, multiple ways of getting firewood. You come to a living tree. You remember that one? Come to a living tree. You want firewood. Now firewood's got to be, of course, dry wood, not nice and green wood. So one way, so you've got a big tree, plenty of firewood, potential firewood, but it's alive and green. So he said there's one approach, and that is to bring out some pruning shears and go from branch to branch to branch and just snip off every leaf, every twig, and just trim it back until it's just kind of this really emaciated, stumpy tree that's now getting nothing from the sun because you cut off all its foliage, and then with no foliage, it just dries up and dies. And then you cut it, and you got a lot of firewood. And it works. That's one way to get some really dry firewood. Kill the tree by cutting off all of its branches, all of its foliage. Just trimming it back. The tree has no chance, right? That's one way. It'll work. And it does work. And there's one approach. And he said this is very very laborious. It takes quite a long time. It's rather complicated. You have to get every single, you know, snip. And then there's another approach. And that's to um, dig a bit and cut the tap root of the tree one fell swoop. Just whack it all the way through the tap root, its primary root. Cut that one and the whole tree dries up. Right to the point. The soft spot in the death, in the soft spot in the death star. You know? So he said our approach in Mahamudra and Dzogchen is the, is the latter. We go right to the core. We go right to the essential nature of the mind, the empty nature of the mind. We cut that. And then, by repercussion, the rest of the tree dries up. And that is all phenomena. Then you see all the objects to the mind, all the appearances to the mind. Well, if the mind itself is empty, how could it possibly engage with something that is inherently real? Well, that sounds like an intellectual statement. But in fact, if you get this experientially, then that's a way of realizing the empty nature of all phenomena. And then the very next chapter goes into Mahamudra and Dzogchen to realize Rikpa. That's it. It's, it's this classic sequence.
And when your mind, when your substrate consciousness, when you break through that into Rigpa, pristine awareness, then you slip out of time. You're no longer in the past, even an imaginary past or the future, nor are you in the present. You slipped into the fourth time. Rigpa is in the fourth time. Unborn, unceasing, immutable, indestructible, impervious. Neither one nor many, but beyond time, in the fourth time. Beyond time, yet pervading time. But beyond time, jadawa, jame, free of activity, inactive, absolutely still. So from that perspective, Rikpa apprehending itself, knowing its own face, absolute stillness, unborn stillness. And it's utterly non-conceptual. It's by nature intrinsically non-conceptual, resting in its own place. So very briefly, let's just kind of take a glance back at this magnificent display of wisdom coming from physics with looking outwardly, outwardly to the physical world, the quantitative, the physical, the objective, and through the brilliance of such people as Galileo and Newton and James Clerk Maxwell and Max Planck and Einstein and Heisenberg and Niels Bohr and right on through John Wheeler, Stephen Hawking, we find this ever-increasing, really radiant Brilliantly brilliant insight of assuming what seems to be obviously true. There's a real physical world out there, absolute space, absolute time, absolute matter and energy. And then seeing through that, and so as Anton Seilinger says, as we probe more deeply, what we assumed all along has never been true. We are not measuring an objectively existent, independent physical world. All that we ever measure, are, all that we ever get, is information arising in response to our system of measurement. So you're familiar with that. And then John Wheeler saying the whole system is a an information processing system, a self a self excited as a internal system of processing information. Paul Davies said, take out the observer participant, the person who says now, and the whole thing is still. It doesn't work. It's just absolutely still. It's beyond time. Introduce the observer participant, and then that sets things in motion. Relative to the present, there's the past and the future. Stephen Hawking pointing out there is no absolute past. There are multiple pasts, depending on the questions we ask and so forth. So one can say, well, good, this is all, I mean, if this is true. But I think I've done, I have done my very best not to try to make these people sound Buddhist, but just read them carefully. And then, of course, this is all in public domain. Everything I've said here, I've written, and you can see all the sources. You can see, you see for yourself. You don't have to have faith in me. And you see what they said, and then you see how I'm betraying it, and see whether I'm doing an accurate job or not. I, I either am or not. But, I will assume I'm not mangling them. Uh, in which case, it kind of gives some credence to a Buddhist philosophical premise. And that is, if something is true, the more closely investigated the more true it will appear. Whereas if something is false, the more closely investigated, the more false it will appear. If something is true, you should be able to get at it from multiple angles and not have to just have one method. One method. 
Well, lo and behold, there are multiple methods within Buddhism. There's chu. That's pretty powerful. Very different method. There's the analytical reasoning of Nagarjuna. That's quite different. There's a Mahamudra approach. That's quite different. There's working in Dumo. Oh, that's a very different. But that will give rise to realization of emptiness also. And very physiological. Right. So multiple strategy, even within Buddhism, coming, coming to the same. Might it be, and here I won't, I won't elaborate on this theme, but might it be that when other great contemplative traditions like the, the, the Neoplatonic tradition in, in Christianity, the Advaita Vedanta tradition in Hinduism, the tradition of the Ain in Jewish Kabbalah, might they be also converging upon that same dimension? Might they be? I have the impression that they do, but that's just my opinion. But I've laid that out a little bit, some evidence to that effect in the book, or Mind in the Balance. But certainly if something is true, it should lend itself to affirmation, knowledge, insight from multiple perspectives. So it's not it's not unreasonable that physicists, by probing deeply, really deeply, over 400 years with multiple revolutions, starting out with commonplace assumptions, there's a real world out there, should actually come to the emptiness of the phenomena. I mean, this is one of the coolest episodes we had in any Mind Alive meeting. But you might, it was when Anton Seilinger, cutting-edge experimental physicist working in the foundations of quantum mechanics, this was 1997, was giving his presentation at a, at a meeting organized by my mentor in physics, Arthur Science. And he was talking about how experimentally, when the physicists are investigating how electrons and other elementary particles exist, how the more deeply you probe into them, the more you find they are not there, independently from their own side. They arise relative to the measurement system, but they're not there intrinsically. And that goes for all of the elementary particles. Well, bear in mind, the entire universe of matter consists of only elementary particles, right? And then there are big, chunky conglomerations. And so he is describing this, and then his holiness listening to him, he said, how could you have come to that conclusion without knowing Madhyamaka? This is exactly what we're saying in Madhyamaka. The elementary particles have no existence in and of themselves. They exist only by conceptual designation, which means interface with subject-object. But they arise relative to conceptual designation, but they're not already there waiting to be discovered. And here's Anton Seiner saying, we figured this out with physics. So the Dalai Lama, how did you get there without Madhyamaka? It's kind of like a rhetorical question, but it was kind of like, wow, that's really cool. And then, of course, Anton turned to his holiness and said, what's Madhyamaka? Because he came to this meeting with an open mind, but not much background, almost none, in Buddhism. So then His Holiness then described Madhyamaka, the great middle way view of Nagarjuna, all, all talking about emptiness and dependent origination. And of course His Holiness gave a succinct, brilliant presentation of it. Anton Seilinger listening with rapt attention, and when he'd finished he said, how could you know that without knowing quantum mechanics? <laughs> So there's a lot of mutual appreciation. But then Anton, of course, having no idea about Buddhist meditation, he just heard his holiness give a brilliant philosophical presentation of the emptiness of inherent nature. But he just only didn't talk about, you know, the years spent in Shamatha and Vipassana and so forth. He just gave, you know, what did we find out? But not how we got there. But Anton, of course, knows exactly how he got to, he and his colleagues got to 
this conclusion from quantum mechanics. He said, Your Holiness, I'd love to bring you to my lab in Innsbruck. He was now world famous because he was the first one in history, as far as we know, to achieve quantum teleportation. I won't go into it right now. It's very Star Trek-y. <laughs> it's the first step towards beam me up, Scotty. You know? And so, but he, he, he'd done all the experiments. You know, he was not just thinking about them, he was doing them. He's a brilliant experimentalist. And so he said to His Holiness, you know, Your Holiness, you know, our talk is very similar. What I'd love to show you, though, is how did we physicists come to these conclusions with experiments? And I can bring you to my laboratory in Innsbruck, University of Innsbruck, and I can show you step by step the double slit experiment, this experiment, this experiment. I can show you the experiment by which we achieved quantum teleportation. Would you like to come to my lab so I can show you the experiments themselves? And in a way so reminiscent of Patrick Stewart, captain of the Star Trek. <laughs> he, he turned to his, his, to his number one and he said, number one, make it so. <laughs> he really did. It was so Patrick Stewart, you know. It, it really was. He turned to his private, personal secretary and said, yeah, make this happen. Yeah, I'm going. You know. <laughs> Fit it into my schedule. So the next, next year we were there. We all trucked off to in, Innsbruck. Took and Jim and myself, Arthur Zions, Anton Zeininger. Ah, oh, it was fantastic. Spent a couple of days, one day in his lab. His holiness presented, Anton's presented. And then, one of the most joyous days of my life, this is pure anecdote, sorry to waste your time, but his holiness had to fly off to Finland. That was his next engagement. Whereas Arthur, my mentor in physics, and Tutin Jemba, his holiness's interpreter, marvelous human being, philosopher, uh, excellent Buddhist scholar, lovely man. I've known him since he was a kid, but how he's a wonderful human being. Uh, and so astute philosophically. Oh, sharp as a razor. So, and then Anton. So Anton Seininger, Tupton Jimba, uh, Arthur Zions, and I, we had a day together. So we went, we went in one of those trams that went up to the top of the mountains in the Tyrolean Alps, and we spent a day just hiking around the Tyrolean Alps, talking about physics and philosophy and Madhyamaka and the achievement of enlightenment. Uh, one of the greatest days of my life. <laughs> Anton said he learned more about philosophy in that one day than in the rest of his life. That's what he said. So, so it all sounds really quite like a celebration, like, oh, how interesting that it was really 2,500 years before Buddha Dharma went global. It really was. It was 2,500 years, because it was, it was in Asia. It was only in Asia. And then in this last century, the last 60 years or so, last century, for the first time in history, it's gone global. And it was only then that physics had ripened to the point that they could have meaningful conversations. Because if Buddhism had really sprung on the scene in the mid-19th century, well, it would have been hammered. Right? It was all classical physics, all clunk, clunky stuff bumping into each other. That's a superstition. So, this suggests something of a, a great complementarity and so forth. But I want to end on this note, and that is, I think that's true. There, this may not be accident. There may be some zeitgeist here. Who knows? But there are differences. And that is, we have this brilliant man. Everybody knows he's brilliant. Stephen Hawking with his amazing insights into the, just the very nature of history itself, history of the whole universe, how it rises up to meet us, multiple histories, and none of them inherently real, none of them absolutely true. All, and multiple ones may be relatively true, depending on which questions you ask. Well, of course, as that, as that is true of the universe, what he didn't say, but what has to be true, is also true of you. What was your past? Was there one real one? Did you try to repull out? Or is your own past simply the one that you've drawn out depending on the questions you've posed? 
But this is this is really pointing to a core theme here. So here's this brilliant man, amazing paper. I read it carefully, written on it a number of times now. The emptiness of inherent nature of the past, how it arises only in dependence upon conceptual designation. But then he was asked oh, within the last year or so, Stephen Hawking. He was asked, uh, Professor Hawking, what do you, how do you understand the nature of consciousness, and is there a life after death? Is there any continuity of consciousness, soul, heaven? And he said, oh, um, I believe the brain is a computer and the mind is a, and the mind is a software. When the when the when the brain dies, that's it. End of end of the program. I read that, my jaw dropped. I thought, oh, any stupid high school kid could have come up with that. I mean, a really stupid kid. You know, any stupid kid could have come up with that one. That's that's your best shot after giving this breathtaking account of the cosmos, and you think consciousness is software. I mean, that was really, that was like, oh, break my heart. <laughs> that is such a disappointment. That you can be so brilliant here, and I won't use an adjective over there, but it's not complimentary. And that is, but there's, but there's nothing to be, to, to, be star- to be disparaging about here. There's nothing in the whole course of training in, in, in physics, from you know middle school all the way up to getting your postdoc and doing research and all of that, there's no training whatsoever in studying consciousness, no theoretical training, no experiential training, nothing. So why should he speak with any more insight than an ordinary high school kid? He's never had a single finger to hold onto of any insight whatsoever, and that's for the whole physics community. Some, like my mentor, Arthur Science, has taken a keen interest, but that's extracurricular. He does that on his own time. And he doesn't get any, any encouragement. In the physics establishment, you start talking about consciousness, and they start talking about firing you. <laughs> and I, I kid you not, a good friend of mine was one of the youngest full professors at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton. Good friend of mine, Dutch physicist, cosmologist. And uh, he's really first rate. He's but again, he was like 30, 32, a full professor where Einstein studied and John Wheeler, you know. And there he was. And then he got interested in Tibetan Buddhism. And he had tenure, of course. He's a full professor. But he started really thinking a lot about consciousness and Heidegger and Husserl and so forth. This Institute for Advanced Study actually tried to fire him. They tried to fire him. And he took him to court. And he won. I don't know how many friends he has there anymore, though. <laughs> you know. There's an enormous amount of intolerance for this kind of thing. So, what's the difference? To, I said I would wrap it up on that point. I will. I'm going to do it right now. And that is, you may have the insight into the emptiness of electrons, like it seems that Anton Seiniger really does. You may have the, em- the insight into the emptiness of time itself and the past of the whole universe. But what impact do those type of insights have on you as a human being? Does it increase your genuine happiness? Does it purify your mind? Does it make you more ethical, more compassionate? Does it give you paranormal abilities? I think the answer is no to all of the above. And that is, I've I've collaborated with, met, spoken together at conferences with physicists from around the world and neuroscientists, different type, different type of scientists. Their general way of life, as a Nobel laureate, I've met a number of Nobel laureates, 
some very fine people. But overall, the way of life is that of pretty much any other professor. Art history professor, geography professor. There's really no difference. Whether you're, you know, what's your lifestyle if you're a geography professor? You know about it, a lot about Lisbon and Portugal and North Africa and, and you know about, you know, the emptiness of inherent nature of the cosmos. The lifestyle is the same. Their conduct is more or less the same. The way they view the world from day to day life, no difference. And so you have insights here that never actually altered your way of viewing reality. They never got in and altered your priorities, your values. There was no practice to actually view reality by way of the insights you've gleaned from your experiments, your theoretical investigations. And there is no way of life to support that. So your insights are orphaned. They are alienated from your way of viewing reality, your practice, your values, and your way of life. They're hanging out there all by themselves, wondering, where am I? Where am I? Where am I? Because they don't fit in anyway, anywhere. In stark contrast to that, and this is true of contemplative traditions around the world, but I'll just speak of the one that I know a little bit about, and that is the Buddhist. This whole, this whole venture, this whole expedition, science is an expedition. Buddhist contemplative inquiry is an expedition, and you know what I mean by that. It starts by restraining the expressions of craving and hostility. Because it's the first line at the gate. We harm each other that way, right? We harm each other. We lie to each other, we cheat, we physically abuse, we, we create a mess of things. And so the first thing is ethics. Well, that's not the first thing in science. It's hardly even the middle thing or the last thing. It hardly comes up. In physics, it doesn't. I mean, the one thing it does is don't fudge your data. That's important. And that's very important. But that's about it. Don't fudge your data. Don't monkey with your data and, and pretend to have conclusions you haven't. It does happen, but it's not good science. But here we're starting with the ground floor, where we're living and how we engage with our spouses, our friends, colleagues, people in the marketplace and so forth. From the very beginning, it already begins to alter our behavior. If it doesn't, you haven't started. If you're not restraining yourself, you haven't started. Right? It starts with ethics. And then there's the whole refinement of the mind, the balance of the mind, the achieving of super-sanity, exceptional balance, extraordinary balance. So the training in samadhi, the four, the four immeasurables and so forth, making the mind ready, preparing the chalice of the mind to venture into vipassana, to venture into insight, into emptiness. While you're sleeping, in the dream state, dream yoga, during the waking state, applying the insights of dream yoga to the waking state, Vipassana in the waking state, Vipassana in the nature of the mind. And in this process, just through the practice of, of, of Shamat itself, and some of you have already found this, your way of viewing reality starts to shift, your priorities start to shift. It's happened for a number of people in the last five weeks. Priorities shifting in five weeks. That's a very short time. But we have the foundation in ethics, we're training the mind, and worldviews starting to change, priorities changing, devoting ourselves to practice which change, way of life. Clearly, this is a very different way of life. So that when, having prepared that ethical basis, having pre- prepared the mind, having made go dormant our ordinary sense of I am the agent, I am the observer, and so forth, 
we're preparing the ground, preparing the ground, preparing the ground. And then when you go to Vipassana, to the type of insights that Anton Seilinger has with respect to electrons, probing this right inwards, gaining that insight, that radically and, when it goes well, irreversibly alters your whole way of viewing reality. That insight into emptiness actually giving rise to compassion. That's quite amazing. It's very sensible. It's very natural. But it comes because there's a whole radical shift of way of life, your whole value system, radical shift of your mind, preparing of the mind, then the insights into Vipassana, then the insights into pristine awareness. And the whole system has gone through an absolutely radical revolution. And it's multiple ones, one after another after another. The revolutions of the wheel of Dharma, rolling and rolling and rolling until the final flower. Of your, your becoming awake. So, some deep insights, parallels between modern physics and Buddhism, I think there are, but some very big differences as well. That nothing is left unchanged on the path of, in, of contemplative inquiry. Nothing's left unchanged. Not the way you relate to your kids, your body, the environment. Nothing remains unchanged. Everything has changed. Your views, your priorities, your practice, your way of life, everything changes. And it changes multiple times. Evolving, evolving, revolving, revolving. One revolution after another. Whereas in science, it pretty much culminates in writing a very good paper. And maybe getting a Nobel Prize. So, there's complementarity there. So, final end, end note. Wonderful conversation. I'm trying to remember who it was. It's a bit of the tongue. It doesn't matter. Somebody encountered the Buddha. This is from the Pali Canon. Can't remember his name right now. But he encountered the Buddha. And like many people, in fact, he tracked him. He tracked him. As I recall, he tracked him. The Buddha had very unusual feet, footprints. Very unusual footprints. Some of those major and minor marks of a Buddha. He tracked him. Whoever left those tracks has to be a very unusual person. And so he tracked him, and then he and he, and he saw him, and he was just blown away. I mean, the Buddha looked different, and he didn't know what to make of him. He just looked at the Buddha and said, "What am I encountering here? This does not fit into any previous categories." And so he asked him, "Who are you? Are you a god?" He thought maybe he was seeing some god who descended from some form realm or something. Are you God? The Buddha said, Buddha, no. Are you some elemental spirit? No. Are you some kind of a like celestial being? Not a God, but just you know, something in between, like an angel? No. Are you a man? No. That must have been a bit of a surprise. Because he looked rather humanish. Are you a man? He said, no. He said, who are you? that I'm awake. So to make sense of that, imagine that you are in a dream and you become lucid. You get really lucid, radiantly clear, fathoming the nature of the dream experience. You are awake within the dream. Right? And somebody comes to you, seemingly not lucid, 
and they see you flying through the sky and walking through walls and multiplying loads and walking on water and doing a lot of really cool stuff. You know, why not? You you're just having fun. You know, in the dream you're transforming, emanating, and so forth. And somebody sees sees your your paranormal deeds and comes over to you. Now, the, for, of course, this person is considered this is reality. You're a very weird, exceptional entity here. And the person comes to you, this person who encounters you, and you're lucid in the dream, and this person seemingly is not. And the person asks, who are you? Are you a god? Now, consider what you would answer. You're totally lucid in the dream, and somebody asks you, are you a god? Well, somebody as handsome as Nico might say, well, if you think so. <laughs> but no, not really. Not a god. Right? You you say not a god, and then elemental beings, celestial beings, and so forth. But now imagine this person asking, "Are you a human being?" Knowing what this person means by that, "Are human being? Do you belong here? Are you like me? Are you a human being within this reality?" And you'd have to say, "No." There's an appearance here of being human, but it's totally empty. There is no human being here. And therefore, no, I'm not human. What are you? I'm awake, and you're not. So maybe it was something like that. Oh, yeah. Yak, 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 yak. <laughs> Let's go meditate. Now I can use very few words, almost none. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural space.
with your eyes open, evenly rest your awareness in the space in front of you with no object. As the awareness of being aware dawns on you, rest simply in that knowing, that awareness. And like sending a flare straight up into the sky above you, direct the sheer luminosity of your awareness up into the space above with no object, as far as your mind can reach. a light illuminating nothing but itself in the open expanse above. And let your awareness descend to its own place, resting quietly in stillness. Extend your awareness out into the space to the right.
back to the center. into the space to the left. Release the tension. Let your awareness rest in its own place. down into the space of the mind below.
letting your awareness rest right where it is. Its own place prior to going anywhere or looking at anything. If you find it helpful, you may close the eyes for a little while and with an utter sense of letting go, total release of grasping, let the locus of your awareness descend to the heart. your eyes once again open, just let your awareness rest where it is, effortlessly, motionlessly. With utter release, release your awareness into space in all directions, without an object, without boundary.
then just rest, doing nothing at all, just being aware of being aware.
So from Kay, we have a question, how do you approach the lion at the gate that has the sense of being the, the observer? How do we get past him? It's interesting that it's a him. I thought we'd say her. <laughs> Dad. Uh, is the inversion of awareness in the oscillation and investigation into this? Yeah. Uh, briefly put, one goes in looking for something that is there. Okay? Uh, and that is when you look in, just what comes to mind? And there's bound to be something. And you look at that, whatever that appearance may be. Right? You inspect it very carefully. And then you observe what's observing that. You take one step deeper in. So when we're involved in attachment and aversion, the mind goes out. This is my house. This is my, this is my, this is my body. Oh, there, that's me. You know. And this whole process is just coming in, 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 breaking down the doors. Even, and that's one of the final ones. The sense of being someone in here. <coughs> the very bifurcation of subject and object. The foundation for dualistic grasping. That there's someone in here. Because there's someone in here, then there's going to be something or someone out there. And then the whole samsara rolls. So coming in here and seeing that what seems to be in here is just an empty appearance and what is observing that. So that's how you break it down. You recognize it and recognize it as being empty. It takes a little bit of work. Are there methods one can do to weaken the veils obscuring luminosity in addition to resting in awareness of awareness and doing the oscillation? Um... Sure. Drinking really strong tea. Uh, everything we've been doing, all of it, you know, the diet, the exercise, all of the methods of shamatha. Uh, bear in mind, it's so easy to forget or to overlook or marginalize. The Buddha said, the one who devotes him or herself to the cultivation of loving kindness, one of the perks is, it would be very easy to slip into samadhi. So the four measurables are great boom. So everything, all of the above. Oh, yeah. Are there any claims as to when the process of taking rebirth actually begins? Yeah, there are. It is certainly complicated. This is from Jason. It's certainly complicated. It's a very good question. Um, in Tibet, in Tibet, in, I mean, until very recently, of course, there was no fertilization in vitro. Little complicated things like that. Um, so, on the whole, I think actually without exception in the Buddhist tradition, it said that conception, that is rebirth, let's say in the human context, to keep it simple, uh, it takes place when, uh, unless you use modern terminology, since we all know they're egg and sperm, when the, when there's that unification and when the, the egg is fertilized and it begins to grow. That is, it's now a living entity, right? From that point. So, the Buddhist view there is that this bardo consciousness, enters into the, into the womb. Uh, and it's generally said, it's generally said, but this is where it gets complicated, and this could be a, this could be a, a symposium, uh, as opposed to a, you know, two or three minute response. It's generally said that, in the, now this is Tibetan tradition, that, that Bardo being, I remember one actually, it was interesting, I'm going to slip outside of Buddhism just for a second, um, the research of Ian Stevenson, so, who's done more research on this scientifically than anybody else? He's passed away now, but his protege, Jim Tucker, is a very sharp guy. I know him. Very good researcher. 
at the University of Virginia, uh, they interviewed somebody. I think it was a child still, some, but, but, but somebody who allegedly had past life recall. And the person had, I think, well, obviously had died, and then took, kind of was hanging out kind of as a ghost, really was a ghost. Hang, this was in India, and hanging out, basically haunting a swampy area. There's a lot of that in India. And there was a path through it, and as a ghost, this this being, recalling how he died, it was a man, and then being a ghost for a while, hanging out in this swampy area, and people would travel through, you know, just on their way from here to there, and he would harass them, he'd trip them, he'd bugger them up to one place, and it just being a nuisance, you know. And I think it was Dr. Stevens interviewing, he said, why were you doing that? <laughs> and he said, I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> kind of like, that's what you do if you're a ghost. You're just going to piss people off, you know? And so he hung out until they just got boring, like any kind of juvenile delinquent. And then he kind of got this urge, just like Plato said. He got this urge that he really wanted to be re-embodied. And so he was kind of hanging out there, you know, as a ghost, you know, just cruising here and there. And then eventually he saw some young woman walking along the river uh, river bank, and he was somehow drawn to her. He followed her home, kind of hovering, you know. Where are you, where are you going? Oh, going to your hubby, are you? Went home to her husband. They were intimate, and he slipped in. You know, he, chose, he chose the woman. And so that's actually completely congruent with the Buddhist view. Um, and it said... Very in a very edible, not edible, but edible fashion, that if one is to take birth as a man, as a boy, one feels attraction, craving for one's mother-to-be and aversion to father-to-be. So there's kind of attraction, aversion, and then going in, into the womb. And the Buddhist view is that, Tibetan Buddhist view, keep it, keep it specific, is that the continuum of consciousness comes in and it takes all three. It takes the male element, the female element, and the entrance of this continuum of consciousness. And it's those three. And bear in mind, this makes it a bit more interesting, bear in mind it's not only some uh, absolutely immaterial, absolutely non-physical continuum of consciousness, but it's also this continuum of subtle prana. And that's physical. It's physical. It's not material, not made out of atoms, but it is physical. So more like, more like um, having a laptop and with wireless internet from my laptop sending a file over to Anizamba's laptop. Okay. Now how many molecules or how many atoms are actually transferred from my laptop to her laptop? Zero. My laptop doesn't get any lighter. No mass. No matter, no atoms were transferred from my laptop to hers. And of course, it doesn't matter whether hers is 10 feet away or 10,000 miles away. Uh, but something physical was transferred. Okay, now that's electromagnetic field. But then, well, so is that coming from the sun? So it's coming from a light bulb. But information also carried, and now we once again have this issue, just as information was carried in the sound waves from my lips to Katinka's ear, so as information carried by now electromagnetic, electromagnetic fields from a laptop over to another laptop. It's carried, but then not really, because if you look at those fields, it's not there. But nevertheless, it is certainly true that information was transferred from here to here. And that information, 
the information from my laptop, if I send maybe a long file or photos or music, who knows what, you know, we know we can send everything these days, from one lap to another, that the information actually does physically alter her laptop, right? And then, of course, it physically alters her physical behavior when she downloads it and her fingers are doing this and that and the other thing. Because there's information, she does this as opposed to that. And so that information is, number one, I put information in. That was physical activity, putting information into a system, sending the, sending the information, receiving the information. So that information is interfacing with matter all the way through as it also interfaces with my mind and her mind. So it's something like that. It would be something like my laptop dying. Imagine if you know you're just, you know, you're, pre, you're, you're clairvoyant, you're precognition, and you know your laptop is about to crash beyond any possibility of recovery. And you see it's going to happen in oh, one hour. Right? And you see all my, all my files, my photos, my files, my music, everything on that computer, and it's going to die. It's going to be just a paperweight in one hour. What do you do? Really quick, buy a brand new computer. Get them linked. And then just transfer all your files. And this computer doesn't get any lighter. No molecule goes from this computer to that computer. But download your software, download all your files, download everything onto the new, fresh computer. And then get it all done in one hour. And then <coughs> that one crashes, throw it away. you got a brand new computer and all your files are there. So consciousness with its information goes from one head top, one body, and then this body crashes. But as it crashes, all the files are sent off. So it's said to take, it's said to take place during copulation, and that is, this is when the, the, the aversion for the father, the attraction for the mother occurs, if you're about to be a male, uh, during copulation. Okay. Well, now we know that just can't be true in all cases. Because if it's fertilization in vitro, what do you feel? Attraction to the, to the petri dish? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it gets a bit weird. Um, and so then it's got to be more complicated. But overall, it's said to be at the concept, the in, in infusion of the consciousness takes place. And, and moreover, it's that prana. It's that prana that actually, and this is, this is a hypothesis, how you'd possibly test it, I don't know, but this is the hypothesis in Buddhism, that it's not enough just for the egg and the sperm to gather, come together for everything to take place. You know, There has to be that consciousness, but also the energy, the prana, which is physical. It's a life energy, exactly what's refuted modern biology, a vis visa, some kind of an energy that is by nature living. That comes in, and that is a catalyst. Now, obviously, there's genetics and all of that, but it's said to be three parts. And the Buddha himself said there need to be three things, the, the male, the female, and then something coming in from outside. So it's not just Tibetan Buddhism. So something like that. Olaso, this is again from Thank You. Thank You has a lot of questions. Uh, what are the what are the practices of settling the mind in its natural state and awareness and awareness called in Tibetan? Sem Baba. Sem Baba is called oh, settling the mind in its natural state. It's a very a very close translation. Um, I was checking the Bajra essence and a couple of other texts by Dujun Lingwe. The text the term he uses more frequently than anything else is Sem Lamdu Kerwa, taking the mind as your path. So, so settling the mind. Uh, and it's also called in the Galupa tradition, um, 
shamatha focused on the mind. And then awareness of awareness is not called that. It's called in, in by Padmasambhava, it's called Samamepe. Samamepe Shine. Shamata without a sign. It's come, come, sometimes called Mipamepe Shine. So Shamata without a support. Um, and that is also called Shamata on mind. But then they're just focusing on awareness. Could you speak about the connotation of the Tibetan terms? I think I have. Yeah. Without a sign means without any target. Without a support, without any referent outside of itself. Sem nerubapa, settling in its natural state means unconfigured, unconfigured by personal history, language, uh, gender, ethnicity, and, and so forth. So, that's it. Oh yeah, we have some minutes left. Anything coming up? I've hardly given any time at all for questions from the floor. Aiden, please. Um, this question about Stephen Hawking's uh, theory about about the past about the past about yes the past and, yes indeed uh, you know how it's kind of a soup and, and there's all this superposition until there's a measurement yeah yeah um, does he so, I mean how does he say that the present is different to the past oh it's not the pre- the present also is is in a superposition state until you make a measurement and then the present rises up to meet you so, so he's not he's not making a distinction right? no past present and future all three superposition state. It's all a world of potential, a world of possibility, until you make a measurement. And it's that making a measurement that makes time flow and takes makes the world become actual. Yeah, pretty cool. Oh, yeah. So, have I subdued you all, stunned you all into silence? Yes, over to Jan. I'm wondering if you could uh, sort of clarify the terms appearance and perception, nangwa and nangyu, like from the perhaps within the context of sort of mind space of space of mind as well as within the eight consciousnesses. Mm-hmm. Nangwa, the general translation of nangwa is appearance. Is appearance. The more common term for perception is munsum, or simply shepa, consciousness. Um, but nangwa is the overwhelming term. It just comes up countless times. And the standard translation, I think it's about as good as any, is appearance or an arising, but appearance is a standard translation. Nangyul, yul, so nangyul means appearing object. That generally, in my, in my sense, and Andrea, if, if you have any different opinion, I'd be well, I would welcome it. Um, also another experienced translator. But nangyul, uh, to my, my sense of it, having seen it, you know, and translated and so forth, Bit, a bit different connotation, and that is, as I attend, as I direct my visual awareness and my mental awareness, mental awareness piggybacking on the visual, over in your direction, their appearances: white, dark, black hair, black of your hair, and so forth. Blue, it looks like blue of the design on your shirt, and so those are appearances. They're just, just appearances, right? But then I say. Your shirt is appearing to me. I, I see that you're wearing a shirt, right? That's a nang yul. It's an object that is appearing. And that object has a number of characteristics. I can tell it's quite thin. It has a certain shape, of course. It was tailored as a collar. Yeah, I'm sure it has a texture. If I touched it, I know what it would feel like. I've touched that kind of shirt many times. So I have a texture. Uh, if it's fresh from the, fresh from the laundry, we know it has that really nice fragrance. 
So if it's fresh, then it would have that fragrance it would have. If it's got a little bit of sweat, then it would have sweat smell to it. Um, and so, you know, so it, so it has a certain, and if I tasted it, it would probably taste like cotton. So it had a certain taste. If I put my tongue to it, it would have a fragrance of some kind of smell, even if it's very faint. It has a texture. It has a shape. Uh, if I rub my hand on it, then it would emit a sound. That is, the contact would emit a sound. This is the sound of rubbing a shirt, like that. And so that object, that, that phenomenon out there in space. Now, your shirt also. Your shirt is roughly, I would say, about 18 feet away from my eyeballs. Right? So even if I close my eyes or I walk away, your shirt's still there. We all know that. If you take it off, you leave it here. Your shirt's here and you're off to dinner. Right? So your shirt is about, I would say, 18 feet or so from my eyes. Right? And so it's out there. And I see it by way of the, the visual. Right now it's just getting visual. Right? That's how I see it. How far away from me, where I am, how far away from me is the appearance of white and blue? of the design of your shirt. How far away? Well, if I got a camera here and tried to get your shirt in focus, then quite true. If I'm right, let's say it's 18 feet, and this is very, you know, it was had a lot of little notches, on, you know, 17 feet, 18 feet, and so forth. For me, for the image as I'm looking through the finder to come into focus, of course it would be 18 feet. It's very true. But it wasn't quite the question, though. How far away is the image, the visual appearance, from me? It's in my mind, isn't it? It's in the substrate. I mean, if we're going to go with, use the terminology of this retreat, we'll say that appearance is arising in my substrate. Right? Your shirt's way over there. Your shirt's not in my substrate. Your shirt was made by a shirt maker, and he wasn't operating in the house of my substrate. You know, probably I wasn't there. And so, quite independently of me, I could never look at your shirt, but the shirt would say, but you could never, have, you might not have bought that shirt, somebody else could have bought it. But really, this is all irrelevant to me, but the appearance is arising in my substrate. So exactly how far is my, is the substrate from me? Right? Wherever that is, yeah. And what I, what I really love about this, it was, it was a, a very small discovery and, you know, everybody knows it, but when you make it for yourself, you've all had this experience of, you know, I'll talk, 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 and then you'll make a discovery for yourself, your own experience, and it's totally different. Like you said, I heard about it, and then I got it. Well, I got something when I was 20, living in Germany. Uh, you know, I'd studied physics and so forth, I was a science major in high school and college and so forth, but, so I kind of knew a little bit about science. But I was uh, kind of an avid amateur photographer at that time, living in Germany. And one, I think it was a beautiful spring day, as I recall, went out into the forest outside of Göttingen, where I was living in Germany, and went to a moss-covered uh, a pond, a very still pond with moss around the edge. It was a beautiful sunny day, really radiant sunny day. And uh, there's this lovely, really effervescent, really brilliant green moss, almost like effervescent or incandescent, almost incandescent, it's a beautiful color. And I thought, oh, and then I could see the pond was so still that I could see the trees. It was a rather small pond, and I could see the reflections of the trees on the far side of the pond in the, you know, when I looked into the pond. It's very pretty. And I thought, oh, I've got an idea. A little, I'm going to be, as we say in, in California, artsy-fartsy, you know? I'm going to do something arty here, and that is I'm going to take a photograph 
of the reflections of the trees on the far side of the pond uh, by focusing down, of course, on into the pond. And I'm going to frame the trees on the far side with the moss on the surface of the of the water. That would be kind of nice framing. Never seen a photo like that. I thought, eh, original. So I got there and got pretty, and so I got my camera. It was a good old single lens reflex, you know, manually focus it. Got pretty close, and so if, if I was 18 inches away, the moss on the surface was in perfect focus, right? So, okay. But I don't want the, I want, I, what I wanted was the, the moss to be out of focus and have the reflections of the trees on the, on the, far bank, have them in focus. And so then I got there and I said, okay, and I need to get those trees in focus. Now the trees are over there, of course, and I'm looking down here, and I had kept on having to go further and further away as I'm gazing down into the water, and it was something like 30 feet. And then finally, as I'm gazing down into the water and rotating the lens, the trees, the reflection of the trees came into focus at about something like 30 feet. And now the moss on the surface, of course, is totally out of focus. Right? But what it was telling me was, that what the camera was telling me, if it, were, if it could talk, was that 30 feet or 29 feet beneath the surface of the water, there's an image. And I've just focused on it. And if you take a photo now, that image will be very clearly showing up in your photo. 30 feet, 29 feet beneath the surface of the water. What is 29 feet beneath the surface of the water? Really dark mud or stone or whatever is beneath because I don't think that was a very deep pool. So it would have been what you expect to be underneath a pool of water in the German countryside. Really dark mud and stone. But that's where the image was. 29 feet below the surface of the water. And if I took a photo, which I did, it would be in perfectly clear focus. So there was indeed, according to the camera, and according to the human eye, 29 feet beneath the surface of the water, there is an image. And the camera says so. And it can prove it by taking a camera. Take a photo, see, it's in focus, and it was in focus at 29 feet, right, or 30 feet from the camera lens. So where is that image that the camera snapped? Well, in Madhyamaka, all phenomena are just like that. All phenomena are like reflections in a pool of water. So... Enjoy dinner. Oh, Andrea, go ahead. Yes. We'll just be a little bit late for dinner, but we have. I'd love to hear what he says, and I, I love. Thank you, thank you, Diego. Love to have everybody here on the podcast. No, he's actually regarding these questions. Yeah. And uh, uh, usually, you find the four object. Which is Nang Yu, Sheng Yu, Sung Yu, and Xin Tang Yu. So the perceived object, the appearing object, the object of apprehension, the object of Xin Tang Yu, the wave, the wave apprehension, and Sung Yu, Nang Yu, Xin Tang Yu, 
Shengyun. Mm-hmm. The the grasp or the grasp object, yeah. The grasp, grasp object. object is the best, yeah. So um in in the in the definition of those four comes clear which every of these four objects uh, works or act. Yeah. There's a there's a whole story behind that, um, but we're past. But so it's a lot. There he Andre just touched the surface there, and he knows a lot more than that. Uh, so this gets very interesting the more deeply one probes. But right now we don't have time for it. But you know where your resource is. There's a guy who knows about four objects. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. And I think the genu yam tope jemba sena toparoa. Yeah, yeah. So when we speak of the, because there was a zindangil, which is the, the, the object that is apprehended. Zindang means, you know, zimbak means to apprehend. And so it's the, so the apprehended. But the zhenyu, when we speak of the, then again, zhenba is like the clung to object. That's when you get in the conceptual mind. And the conceptual mind apprehends. So your perceptual mind, perception, yeah. So perceptually, visually, you can say, okay, Visually, you get, there's an apprehension of green, of sound, or what have you. But it's the conceptual mind that also then makes sense, makes sense, labels and cognizes conceptually. So, there's a lot, of, Buddhist epistemologists thought an awful lot. And they thought a lot about a lot of things there. And that was one of them. But, our dinner is waiting us, so enjoy your evening, and see you tomorrow.